welcome to Ludo Narrative Dissidents, Episode 3, Knights Black Agents, also known as NBA, well, at least to role-playing games, there's another NBA out there, and uh, sometimes when I abbreviate this game, uh, there's some confusion, but uh, <laughs> this is the Pelgrin Press, uh, Vampires Meet Secret Agents, Gumshoe Horror Role-Playing Game, and of course, uh, with me as always is Greg Stolze and James Wallace. Hey. And uh, I'm, of course, quite happy to talk about this game because I have run quite a few sessions of it uh, on Roleplaying Public Radio. Uh, I've also talked to the author, Ken Height, about it and the Gumshoe system creator, Robin Laws, uh, about Gumshoe. Uh, and uh, there's a lot I love about the system and there's some things I, I don't love about it. And I'm happy to dig into uh, both of them. Um, Oh, actually, before we get into that, I do want to do a bit of news, which is uh, I have created a uh, public mirror uh, for our episodes. It's on anchor.fm, uh, Leto Narrative Dissidents. There is a link in a public Kickstarter backer, um, and we'll I'll keep putting links up on uh, the Kickstarter. And so every, every episode, about a month after it goes up, uh, it was sent out to backers, it will be made publicly on our anchor.fm mirror. So if you have a podcasting app and you've been waiting for us to put it up on an RSS feed so that you can just download it directly to your podcasting app of choice instead of having to manually download it, which I know is a pain in the butt, uh, here's here's your options. And episode zero and one uh, are on it. And we will have the uh, Outlaws of the Water Margin curated episode up soon. And then uh, by the end of the month, we will have a uh, Lancer up there. Um, so that is a bit of news, uh, just a and bit of housekeeping. Yeah, those will probably all happen before people hear this one. So, um, well, yeah, <laughs> hopefully, it's, I it's like time travel. It's yeah. extraordinary. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, the Anchor uh, FM mirror will stay up for indefinitely, and that'll be our our public repository for. Um, this podcast. So uh, if you miss an episode on the Kickstarter, that's where you will eventually find it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So let's, I guess we should start with question one. What does the game do? Uh, James, uh, what does um, Night Black Agents do? Well, I have to, I have to start with a disclaimer in as much as like yourself, I, I know Ken and uh, Robin pretty well. Um, I also used to share an office with Pelgrain Press, who published it. Um, Simon Rogers of Pelgrain and Kat Tobin of Pelgrain both came to my wedding. I'm up in up to my neck with these guys. Um, Ken is, is to a large extent, responsible for the success of The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchers and my indie storytelling RPG from 1998. He was the guy who basically became at St. Paul and went round Gen Con converting people to its cause. Um, so I'm, I am biased to, to be in, you know, to be massively in favor of this. Oh, and I've had some of the best meals of my life with, with Ken as well. Mm -hmm. Um, he is, he's excellent company. If you ever get the chance, um, I'm inclined to like this. Trencherman. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting game. I must say, I have not read the release version of Knights Black Agents. The version I, the version I have is a preview that they released at Dragon Meet in 2011. Dragon Meet is a London one-day role-playing convention um, in a limited edition of, of 50 signed copies because I'm that colour of arsehole. And uh -huh. um, basically... We, we, we all suspected. 
<laughs> it was a pre it has no no artwork in it. It was basically dump the text and charge twenty pounds for it. Um which, you know, fair enough. So I don't know to what extent it changed between that for this version, which is still a two hundred and twenty page book, and then the the um the finished one. Um it's basically it's it's a really tight, interesting, narratively driven, um primarily narratively driven modern tactical espionage game um, with vampires. And very much in that, in that order, it's the, about the first two-thirds of it are a modern tactical espionage game in the style of a Jason Bourne thriller. And it's very cinematic as well. It does not really make any nods to realism at all. And, oh, um, well, I mean, there, there, are, there are dust and mirror modes which can make it much more like a Tinker Tailor Soldier spy. Yes, uh, the yeah. modes. We I mean, they, 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 the they change the tone. They don't necessarily make it make it realistic. It's this is not. I mean, there are vampires. <laughs> yeah, and 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 then suddenly, about two thirds <laughs> of the way through, it's kind of oh, and vampires. It's it's a really interesting tonal tonal shift. It works because that's the way a good thriller would work. It would be uh, you know suddenly you don't start out with the supernatural. You normalize. Um, and Spielberg's one of the great masters of, of this poltergeist. About nothing happens in the first half hour of poltergeist, pretty much. It's just going, life is completely normal. And then when the, the weird stuff happens, it, it hits really hard. And Knight's Black Agents, the rule book at least, does exactly the same thing. Um, and it's, it's halfway between being a role-playing game and being a toolkit for a, for a role-playing game. It's very much yes. mix and match. Match your own elements there is not a, these are the vampires, and this is the guy at the top of the pyramid, and it's your job to knock him off. It's, here are about 20 different flavors of vampire, and choose what you want. And, you know, where are they from? Are they from Transylvania, or are they from outer space? Were they made in a laboratory? That's all down to you. I love that in games. Um, GURP Space, I think, was one of the first I ever saw that was essentially that kind of toolkit, which was a brew-your-own-universe uh, Lloyd Blankenship ship. Um, and... Ken, of course, wrote extensively for GURPS and for Steve yep. Jackson. And I think learnt well from the master's knee. Um, in terms of, I mean, mechanically, it's it's a blend of the gumshoe system, which, as you mentioned, Robin Laws is basically diceless system originally designed for... It's, it's gumshoe is... Well, the, the investigation part... Right. is diceless, and the, and the, the, which is the interesting part, because the, he... <laughs> It's basically a way of getting past the secret door problem in D&D, which yes. is what happens if there's an important secret door and everyone fluffs their fine secret door roll. The, gum si- the gumshoe insight is what I call yes. this. And I, in- I, I cite it in a lot of my own work with investigative games because it's, uh, you know, Robin's big moment in which the jeweled lotus of his mind was opened was... Nothing. There is no mystery novel that's good that focuses on what the detective does when he doesn't find the clue. So Gumshoe is just like, give them the clue. Shovel clues at them. There is a central clue that pushes you forward. You will always find that. There are also ancillary clues that maybe make you more survivable or give you an advantage later on. Those may cost you something, but the thing that gets you from where you are to the next cool gunfight is always free. Yeah, 
It's if you look in the right place, you'll find the clue. There's no dice rolling to... involved. Yeah, it's not even really look. It's just show up at the right place, <laughs> and and it will be bestowed upon you, which works so much better than rolling for them. Yeah, it's it's joyous, and they've they Pilgrim have adapted the gumshoe system for a whole variety of different genres. Um, but then on top of that, you've got the tactical espionage stuff. I'm probably using tactically wrong there, but um, you know, quite it's a cr- quite a crunchy set of mechanics um, with scalably f- crunchy. Yes, yeah. it's like everything. It's it's up to you how much of this stuff you take on board and how much you don't. Um, with a lot of it's it's all based on a single d6 roll, but with an awful lot of modifiers. Um, you basically every skill you've got, you can. Sp- spend points from it to modify every role. So everything becomes a decision of, do I spend points on this one? Do I save the points in case the, that skill turns out to be crucial later on? Um, and it's it's surprisingly pointy. It's surprisingly numerical uh, for what I... When I, for, I remember the first time I read it, thinking this is just going to be basically narrative stuff based on thrillers, based on, you know... That's, um, that's the, you projecting, James. That's that is me projecting, yes. That is how yeah. I would have done it. Um, uh, but um, And it's interesting how well those two sit together. Uh, because of you've course. got the the straight stuff, and then you've got the the very role-playing stuff. Um, and it allows you to shift, essentially. It's, it's, again, it's narrative tonal shifting. And if there's any two designers, I would say, in the industry who... Supremely good at taking apart existing narrative forms and analyzing them and working out how they will work in roleplay. Robin, of course, wrote Hamlet's Hit Points and then a follow-up up, the name of which I can never remember, which is about beat structures in in fiction and how to take them apart and reuse them in, in role-playing games and in well in interactive media generally. I've I've used his books extensively teaching story design for video games, um, and and it really shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would agree with uh, a lot of that. Um, I, w- I think uh, Knights Black Agent is not so much. I mean, the tactics are actually, I would describe it in a meta game sense, uh, resource management, um, as you kind of uh, alluded to, the point spending mechanics. Um, and then there is sort of a mastery of like the genre. If you understand the spy genre and uh, plan well, um, then you don't have to spend as many points to get through a problem, but or you can just choose to spend a lot of points. About how you spend the points and when you spend the points uh, matters a lot, but it's not tactical in the sense of I need like like our last game, Lancer, which is very it's not like <laughs> yeah. Lancer. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a different it kind is, of tactic. Yeah. Well, one is tactical; it's spatially tactical. Mm-hmm. And the other is economically tactical. It's oh, okay. You know, yeah. I'm gonna hoard my points. And, you know, have six points a shooter when I need it at the end, mm-hmm. instead of looking cool, taking out the sub bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also get out of the way that, yep, Ken is also a, a Kenite. The guy has been around uh, a long time, was very instrumental towards helping me at the beginning of my career. Uh, got me my first work for White Wolf, and so uh, yeah. Also not, also probably unable to be completely objective about this game uh, as I would be if it was written by someone who whose name I was not so aware of. That said, 
I do have a part in my notes which just said, Ken, no, I believed in you. And can either of you guess what prompted that response? <laughs> was it the future conditional? It was the future conditional text. <laughs> and I am sorry to be banging on this drum again, but I will do it every time I see it. So if you want to shut me up, write a game that doesn't make this mistake. All right. I'm just, right. I, I'm just so tired. I'm so tired of having to tell people to not use will that mm -hmm. if the agents go to the right place, they will find a clue is less smooth than if the agents go to the right place, they find a clue. Mm -hmm. <sighs> and and I'll stop now. I'll stop because I know that this is this is my fate of Morgana from the the. The fatal illusion I cannot look away from, like the gaze of Medusa or the song of a siren. But I, yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll pull myself back from the brink. You'll be glad here, I have, I have no comments on column balance, because as I said, my edition <laughs> is essentially a preprint, and they've made no attempt to make the layout pretty in it. So, uh, uh, I did notice uh, the... It, it looks pretty good. I've got the published version. Uh, I don't know if so it's do the I. most recent edition. There were a few spots where there was the wrong glyph. Ooh. And I'm like, man, if you're going to do a game where you have all these different little icons, make sure you use the right icon for the right thing, because otherwise it just becomes more confusing. And because of its nature, this is a game that is at risk of being a little confusing when you are setting it up. Um, so what it does, James has covered very, very well. It is Spies versus Fangs, which, wow, who wouldn't want to play that? It is an easy, easy pitch, and it does exactly what it says. It gives, It makes you spies who are fighting vampires, and cleaves closely enough to the fictional archetypes mm -hmm. that you know it's not going to throw you any hard curves about the spy part of it if you've watched enough spy movies you know what your character's supposed to be doing so have we covered what it does and are moving into how it does it which is where i you know i really get my knife and fork out um, I, 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 just a few notes, uh, before we uh -huh. move on, uh, one thing about the layout, it uses the three column format that, uh, basically every gumshoe book put out by Pelgrim Press does, uh, with some variations, obviously, and you don't really see three columns of text in a lot of role-playing books. Uh, I think two columns is more common, uh, but it's more it's, of a magazine thing, he yeah. says, as a former, briefly former, formerly a graphic designer, that's, that's yeah. magazine layout. Yeah. Um, but it, it's definitely functional. Um, it does have occasional, uh, little bits of what they call DVD commentary, uh, to provide advice, which is useful. That, that dates it so much, doesn't it? That little DVD <laughs> icon, which is, it's a lovely idea of just kind of throwing in a little bit of design, design notes yeah. or it, it advice to players like, or advice to GMs. Mm -hmm. Dracula vampire director, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's advice for the GM directly from the designer to the, um, so, the uh and then of course there there is there are a couple of major well i guess that's the next section but um greg when you mentioned that it's an easy buy-in for players i would actually like to say in my experience um i think this is actually kind of like lancer in that um 
this actually has a buy-in. Uh, actually, a f- not a, an incredibly steep buy-in, but there is a buy-in for players. One is actually being versed in knowing what spies do and how they work and like even a knowledge of uh not all of my players are were really into the into that genre and could like think of ways to go undercover to get information or understood like what spies would do beyond like shoot bad guy like they hadn't watched every season of person of interest right well <laughs> exactly or like ronin more than 5 times um or uh <laughs> tinker or red tinker tailor soldiers by um, but like, of course, one of my players was Caleb. So he was just like, I'm here. All right, here's the plan. Um, Caleb Stokes. So he is, he is very much a planner and very, very happy to just give everybody a role and, you know, sort of be the leader of the team. Um, and to make plans against the GM and not tell the GM what the plans are until they happen. Um, so <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> the other buy-in, um, is not specific to this game, but rather the gumshoe system. Mm-hmm. And the gumshoe system, there is an ex- the Robin Law specifically wanted to create a sort of anxiety or tension uh, in the player by spending points Be- because and some of, and at least two of my players are like, I don't like this because I don't like spending a point and then it's gone. What if I need it later? Ah, uh, uh, I bet they loved red markets. They do love red markets, but red markets, you get charges back relatively quickly. And you okay. have um, – it's it, charges are – like in in Gumshoe, you spend a point of an, an investigative ability and it, it takes a while to recover that. Like it, it's – and you don't always get everything back until the end of the mission and a new mission begins, um, and which could take multiple sessions to play through. So um, my play – and also just – yeah, the refresh. And then just even just in the middle of a game session, like, do I spend my points of shooting and fighting or running away now or do I do it later? And that and that anxiety is by design. You don't you don't know, like, because it's terrible to blow a lot of points and then still roll a six and you wasted them for Robin. That was the purpose of the system. It's it's meant to emulate. It's a horror system. It is meant to be. Uh, to create tension and suspense and that lack of empowerment, which is, you know, part of the genre. Um, Your anxiety is a feature, not a bug. Yes. Yeah. One one thing that's worth mentioning is it does not say, at least on the cover of my edition, that it's a horror game. And I think it's only about page 130 that it goes, and of course, in a horror game, and you go, of course, it's a horror game. It has not mentioned it up to that point. And it does, a lot of role-playing games, there's this tension between whether they are calling themselves a horror game, are they simply playing around with the tropes of horror or are they actually trying to horrify? Are they trying to scare you? Are they trying to create that sense of of, of tension and dread, ideally, within players? And I think Knight's Black Agents, for all its its funness, is fundamentally, let's play around with the tropes. Mm -hmm. Um, Though, I have to admit, I've not actually played it, that yeah. sense of spending points and running out of points and running out of resources will create an emotional response. Though not necessarily the emotional response at the terror of the, the supernatural foes, more at a terror of just running out of stuff that you can do effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I would not judge whether it is real horror or just sort of dress-up horror by how it reads on the page, but how it plays at the table. So I can't judge, but I know what you mean about 
you know, is this horror like exorcist horror, like Babadook horror, like it follows horror, or is this more like, uh, uh, what was it? American horror story horror, which mm-hmm. does, which has all the pieces and, you know, I, and I like parts of it, but I never felt that it was about disturbing me as much as it was interesting me or presenting a horror-themed spectacle. And I like spectacle, but it did not affect me the way the Babadook did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the sources that Ken cites in, in the back as inspirations for it are very much the kind of playing with the tropes. I mean, doing interesting things with the tropes, but they're not trying to scare you. Um, John Carpenter's Vampires and the novel that he's based on is the one mm-hmm. that springs to mind. I enjoy John Carpenter's Vampires. It's not one of his great, but, um, you know, it's it's fun enough. But it's, you know the vampires. They are not scary. Yeah, I think that's uh, enough for what the game does. Let's talk about ooh, how ooh, it just, does so- Sorry, just just one other okay. thing which I was going one to. I, more. I I could have gone in two parts, and I went down one, and now I'm going to go down the other one. The other one is right. it's explicitly put together for campaign play. This is a game that says a scenario will take yes. around three sessions, but you should play a bunch of them, and it's a campaign. Um, this is talking about player buy-in. You know, a commitment of time to this game. Um, I think it will be richly rewarded, but there's a lot that's quite old school. For a game that came out two years after Apocalypse World, it still feels very kind of notably derived from the classic Gygax Arneson paradigm of the GM is in charge, the players are are fed stuff and react. There's not very much player-centric stuff, player creation of the the world in here. And that kind of long-form... I've completely lost my thread of where I was going. It's interesting you mentioned that. Like, I, I see what you're talking about, like the idea of players um, collaborating to do the world building and campaign setting and that kind of stuff. Is that sort of what you're like? What Apocalypse World very much does? Yeah, yeah. That's hard to do with horror. Well, yes. actually, the um, which is a little beyond the scope of this episode, but uh, the Dracula dossier, which is a campaign uh, for Knights Black Agents, which uses the novel Dracula as like the er handout like it is the you um they actually took dracula and added a bunch of like scribbled marginalia and notes and other things relating to it and um there now i haven't fully read it but like the idea is that the players would read this novel and you'd present sort of an inciting incident scenario and then the players would read the novel and be like oh i bet this means that and so the gm would listen to this and basically decide to the players generate these theories about what's going on based on what's happening and what the novel is sort of hinting at. And, um, Oh, see page 15, they talk about the, uh, uh, the bloody dagger. Uh, uh, and well, I, we saw a bloody, a symbol of a bloody dagger on that tattoo. Um, so clearly that means that guy's a cult and we need to go over here and the GM, Oh, well that's interesting. Let's, let's go with that. Um, and then very, very astutely spotted. Yeah. So, that's kind of the halfway. I mean, the thing is, there's only so much collaborative world building you can do with a mystery mm. game, which is what this yes. is. Because, like, <laughs> the players can't just say, oh, well, the combination of the puzzle is 4 3 2 1, because that's. <laughs> yes. That's, yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say that it's hard to do a horror game 
that is collaborative. And then I thought, oh, but didn't I just do that with Unknown Armies 3rd Edition? Mm-hmm. And the reason I was able to do that is that it is not a mystery investigative game at, it, at its heart the way this is. Mm-hmm. Centrally, Unknown Armies is a character game. Yeah. And the collaborative building is very much like, okay, here's the kind of rope I'm going to give you to hang my character with. These are the things that make me tick, and these are the things that make me go, boom, let's see how this plays out. It encourages people to sort of self-sabotage in a way that this does not, because uh, you know, it's about this is about spies who are hyper competent, and mm-hmm. so it's you know it, it's entirely different. And doing a mystery game with a lot of player input would be tough. Yeah. And you know, at some point, you are going to have to come down on what element of the game is going to know the solution or produce the solution, whether that's going to be the players, the GM. Or the dice. And in this instance, Ken is jumping on the idea of the GM. The GM decides what the mystery is, and he jumps on that with both feet. Well, I I mean... It's a valid choice. Right. Yeah. But the the, the Dracula dossier is, here's a mountain of ambiguous clues. The players grab them and then give them the... Basically, give these the clues that they think are the most interesting and then the gm kind of finishes polishes them for the the scenario um at least on my so yeah. it it sounds like a wrestling match between the rules or at least an objective object in the form of the book mm-hmm. and the players choosing where to spend their economy of attention and the gm taking their reactions to this Rorschach blot and saying, it is a wolf. Look mm-hmm. at look at the brains on you. You figured out that blot looks just like a wolf. Right. And a butterfly. Nice. It's the wolferfly. Are, are we in the business of, of spoiling? I don't think it's much of a spoiler. I think it's kind of in the description of, of what the Dracula dossier is. Um, the basic idea that the... As I recall, the uh, the British Secret Service basically lures Count Dracula to Britain in the 19th century in the hope of turning him into an asset for them, and it does not go well. And um, and then you're as the players, you're you you know, sometime later you pick up the pieces. And the idea is that Stoker's novel, Stoker in in Ken's version, I don't know much about Bram Stoker. Um, it was involved in this, and this is basically him trying to get the truth out there. And the original novel was heavily redacted, and yeah. it's just—it's a brilliant conceit. Um, on but one it, level, I would say Knights Black Agents, if for no other reason, for no, not deserving any other place in your collection, as an engine for running the Dracula dossier, is worth its place. I was yeah. going to say it's—it's it's a great idea if you have players who love doing homework. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah. By the way, yeah. you're gonna. This book's like 300 pages, 287 pages long. Have a gander. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, some that's... players are just gonna shit their pants at the very suggestion, mm-hmm. and others are gonna be like, "Why don't more games produce 287 page novel uh, <laughs> tie-ins to their settings?" So. Yeah. But no, I think sure. this is this is this is our segue to how it does what it does. Yeah, sure. 
Well, there's two major things about how it does what it does. On the player side, it has the expanded, um, almost almost like Gumshoe 1.5. Like it, it is a vastly expanded section of Gumshoe rules based f- compared to like Trail of Cthulhu on what players can do and how they can spend points. Uh, and then of course the game modes and then on, well, and then on the GM side, you have the game modes uh, and then the conspiramid and those are, and then I guess then vampire creation rules. So those are sort of kind of the, the four major things I think. Yeah. That it does. Well, one yeah. of those I want to, uh, and I want to dial back and add one to those. There, there were things yeah. le- there that that uh, I sort of saw from a different perspective. Okay. But the one I want to say, I want to tie it back to Lancer. Because mm-hmm. remember, what we noted about Lancer was that it had two very different modes of play. And it's like, mm-hmm. here's the extremely detailed, risky, techie, fiddly, mappy version for when you're in your giant robot slugging it out. And here's the vague hand wavy 50 for 50% base chance to do everything mode for literally anything when you're not in your giant fighty robot. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, you know, this works because this game knows what it wants to be. Similarly, Gumshoe really wants to be an investigative game and knows that. Mm-hmm. So it has a, it has two modes the never miss investigation thing where the only question is, are you going to be good and get the clue or are you going to spend and get the clue plus some extra frosting and cherries on top? (laughs) And the other part is general skills where it's like, Oh no, this is, this is where you have to roll an actual die, my friend and where things are up in the air and, you know, you you can get sloppy and and perish. So that segmented two versions, and I'm sure, I am sure there are some people who absolutely hate that there is one set of mechanics and one approach for investigation and another set for everything else. But I'm here for it. I'm like, yeah, you couldn't. You want to have a very deterministic investigation mechanic and a less deterministic everything else mechanic. I'm there Mm -hmm. for it. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. uh, My other observation about just the whole thing as a gestalt is how componented it is. And this is, this is with the modes Mm -hmm. and in in at some at one point you suggested this is not a game so much as a a series of segments that you use to construct your game which is you know it's a fair point yeah um you have four different modes which are oh do you want this to be the you know to to spy and you can do it with no modes or blended modes so there's a lot of different spicing going on. Do you want it to be everyone is going to betray everyone else and there will be a lot of player versus player stuff, which in my experience is almost always playing with fire and ends with less fun and more recriminations. But if you if that's what your group is into is, you know, backstabbing and, you know, sulking on the drive home, play mirror mode. And if you want it gritty realism with extra grit play dust mode and if you want 
extra internal torment and psychological uh, uh, misery, play it with burn. And so there are rules that you kick in or take out depending on which modes you're using or not using. Similarly, it has a, it doesn't say here's the vampires. It says, here's a kit for ver for building vampires. Do you want, you know, Dracula vampires? Do you want Nosferatu vampires? Do you want the strain? Do you want the stress of her regard? And mm. do you want Necroscope? What vampires do you want? And then guides you through how to assemble those. So the advantage to this from the player's perspective is I can go into Knights Black Agents knowing a great deal about how it's going to feel on one level. I'm like, yeah, my character is going to be this hyper-competent character straight out of a procedural who never, you know, who's never embarrassed by going, oh, yeah, I forgot my watch. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, what vampires am I going to uncover? Is it going to be satanic spirits infesting dead flesh? Or is it going to be a military uh, psychic experiment that went awry? And so mm -hmm. there is a, a great deal. So the that's a nice, another nice split. I would describe the game like as a toolkit, like to build a uh, a game in this in this very specific genre of um, humans fighting, uh, you know, very skilled humans fighting a secret, covert uh, battle uh, war against vampires um, or some kind of unnatural beastie. Um, that can manipulate and control humans. Uh, the, uh, like I, I, I did one campaign of it where the player, the, the vampires turn out to be Lovecraftian, uh, uh, bad guys that, and I didn't reveal that until eight sessions in. And, uh, then I did another one where they were based on, uh, Greek mythology. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Uh, and the players still at the end of that one thought it was, I was, I was going to reveal the Lovecraftian aspect of it <laughs> at any moment. Um, I, yeah, despite my pleas that no, this was not Lovecraftian. This is the, I, I, I swear to you. So, um, yeah, it's but very versatile in that regard. <laughs> it really is. And it's all there to be, to be modified and adjusted to the, the tone that you want. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. four campaign settings that you were talking about, Greg, essentially they're there as, as well. You choose what level you want to set stuff at and the game will support you in that and give you advice for that specific level of, of play. Um, it's surprisingly, I mean, the huge equipment lists and, and stuff like that in there, which I, I really wasn't expecting when I when I went back to it. I had forgotten quite how much of that stuff there is in there. You could quite cheerfully play this without any supernatural elements at all oh, and have a blast it doing a modern. That. Yeah, it's basically a modern espionage, and it does it provides that as an option as, as well. And and uh, Ross, as, as you said, you basically did play it as a modern mm -hmm. espionage game, and then went, woohoo, vampires. Um, po possibly in a different accent, possibly not quite that way. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very versatile game. It's 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 not this is the way you will play this. It's um, it's how do you want to how do you want to have fun with this game? Mm -hmm. um, one thing is also the the systems for it, the rules um, allow are easily exported to other Gumshoe games, and I know I've used uh, especially the cinematic chase rules mm. uh, in a pulp Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, 
adaptation of the masks of Nyarlathotep. Uh, so, and that worked out very well because I was going for a very pulp angle and that, that, you know, running car chases with slash gunfights through the streets of Shanghai worked very well. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was who was comparing the, Oh, the Dracula movie that had Keanu Reeves in it with somebody else's Dracula. Oh, that was movie. Coppola. That was Coppola. Yeah. Coppola, Francis yes. Ford Coppola and, yeah. and something else. And it's like, is there a stagecoach chase? And mm. in the Coppola one, it's, surprisingly yes and in the other one it's surprisingly no those chase rules are weirdly reminiscent in fact maybe directly inspired by the um the starship chase rules from the original star wars rpg in 1986 mm. i got a Never huge flashback reading oh it's greg kostikian height of his powers um but it's very much how far apart are you can one catch up and, and, and overtake which is the, the crux of this and it worked amazingly robust well, system I, for running this kind of thing and that's how i designed chase rules in rain without ever being aware of that i mean it's that's pretty much the definition of a chase are you close enough for me to grab you no then i need to get closer are you far enough that i can't grab you uh, no then you want to get farther i mean so I, I it does not seem but at the same time boiling down and Another one of the the urtexts that's referred to several times in this is is which we've referred to already, Ronin. Um, you know, with amazing car chases in it, you can just boil that down to a very simple set of of mechanics, and it will work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything else is is in the description and the mind's eye. Well, and it's not, but it's not just. It's not only Chrome. The actions you choose to take. And the spends that you choose to make out of your your limited economy of skill points makes it a very strategic experience where it's like, okay, I am running low on drive points. How can I get the hell out of here with some of my other skills? How am I going to use – I got a – I got a load of points left in architecture. How am I going to use architecture to escape? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or I, you know, how can I use disguise to get me out of the, to, to make this car chase harder? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is a lot of uh, like encouragement to, to allow investigative spins uh, in, in action scenes like that. Like, Oh, you can use, if you spin a point of architecture, you get plus three to your next driving check because you know, the streets well enough that you can, you, you, or, you know, that there's a, a, um, this building under construction that you can, you can drive through um, for example, uh, that your, your foes will not know about um, there. So yeah, which is, I liked it quite a bit better than like Trail of Cthulhu. In fact, I've used some of those rules back in Trail of Cthulhu because Trail of Cthulhu was very uh, purest in what you could and could not do, at least by default, uh, with investigative skill points. And so players often wound up with unspent points that they couldn't figure out a justification to use in certain scenes. I personally like and well there and you know i was talking earlier about knowing the spy genre well enough is kind of like a requirement to play this game well and part of that is uh these cherry moves which if you get us if you have a certain level of a general ability um you get an additional benefit uh from it a special unique ability and one of them uh, for example is if you have shooting eight points of shooting 
um, you get access to, in, at least in the default rules, techno thriller monologue. Now, again, if you, <laughs> um, I love pl- that part. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's equivalents for driving and martial arts where the idea is you once per fight or once per game, you if you can lovingly describe your firearm, its various accessories like a Tom Clancy techno thriller, uh, then you would refresh three points of shooting. Hold on. Uh, let me let me find the actual one where I just stuck a yellow sticky note with a heart was. As I fire one of its trademark bursts from the HKUMP, I take a deadened existential solace from the solace from the soulless blankness of its pol- polymer casing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, this is great because this is this is something that a certain demographic of gamer loves is mm-hmm. getting into all the fiddly little details of the gear list. And so, yeah, for the car stuff, or I would be able to do that for the martial arts stuff all day long. I'd be Mm -hmm. like, I want my I want my three point refresh. I'm going to tell you exactly what Daki Koopy Jime looks like. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And uh, it's yeah. It's also worth pointing out, just as a footnote, that Ken is a heck of a writer as well. It's it's (laughs) a pleasure to read. Moments like that are just lovely. Yeah. Um, so by default, the player characters are actually have quite a bit of resources. And, uh, one thing that Knights Black Agents characters can do is they can actually set up a plan and enact it with, with a, with a very, with a good guarantee of success. Now, um, that means the, the difficulty, the challenge of the game then is coming up with a plan that will actually have, uh, an impact. So, um, and for example, like sort of the difficulty with the, the mystery is for being able to interpret clues. So if you have and for, if you have information about say the vampires are weak to, um, gold, or maybe they're weak to silver. And so if the players don't have enough points to spend to figure out which metal they're vulnerable to, they'll have to guess and set up a plan that uses a silver or a gold weapon. And if, even if they spend a lot of points and they chose the wrong metal, then that vampire is just going to be real pissed at them. And, uh, uh, it doesn't matter. So, um, yeah, uh, that, that's kind of the, the, the challenge of this game. So even though characters seem very powerful, um, if you can't think on your feet, or at least as well as the GM can, uh, you're going to be in a bit of a situation. Um, well, but you have the MOS to fall back on. Uh, right. Which is every character has a skill where one time per session they can say, I am using this skill and I roll a... Instead of rolling, I'm just going to invoke this and succeed. Mm-hmm. And you know the example is if your MOS is shooting... It's like, oh, I'm just going to kill this dude. Mm-hmm. And you can automatically do that. Won't work necessarily on vampires, but one of the examples that I, I loved was the preparation uh, skill where mm-hmm. someone spends a bunch to have a rocket launcher ready just as the vampire is escaping and says, my MOS is shooting. I haven't used my free auto hit this session. <laughs> I'm going to fire the RPG at the vampire's helicopter with 
by auto hit and what gamer doesn't want to say i am going to fire the rpg at the vampire's helicopter with my automatic hit mm-hmm. no for sure um now there is a bit of player advice uh to help player in, 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 after a character creation um but yeah it's uh, and the, but the, and also the, again those rules are technically optional. If you want to play, if you're if the, you're the GM and you want to run a darker game where players have more fewer resources, yet say closer to Delta Green, then you can just disable those rules entirely. <laughs> um, the uh, of course the other side of the coin, of course, are the rules for the GM. And I think you know there's for me the two big things are the building of vampire, but the the real crown I think is the conspiramid. Uh, uh, creation rules. Um, mm-hmm. and are, that, are we into how people play or are we still how it does what it's doing? Because I think I, the conspiracy is how it does what it does. Cause like, yeah. that's kind of the core gameplay loop, right? Is, um, so what the conspiracy. Cons- yeah. Is I'll let you describe pyramid. it. Okay. Yeah. Cause I have, I did run a uh, 13 session campaign in it and, um, it means conspiracy conspiracy pyramid. And the idea is that you build an org chart uh, with a vampire at the top and then branching down a pyramid of uh, lieutenants and organizations under the vampire's control or vampire's control. If there's like a council or a hive mind or whatever the hell's going on and the players start at the bottom and work their way up. So in a, it's sort of a metaphorical dungeon. You start at the bottom. If you think of this, this, you know, street gang or this very small organization as the first room of a dungeon. Um, and the player characters go through these pawns, investigate it, take them out and get clues leading a connection. Oh, well they're getting drugs from this drug dealer. Okay. Well, this drug dealer is, uh, has connections to this business. Uh, and this business has connections to this, not this art museum. Why? That's weird. Uh, and so they keep working their way up the, the conspiracy, this pyramid. Um, but as they do, the conspiracy becomes alerted to their presence and starts taking measures against them. Um, and so there are rules to adjudicate what the conspiracy, uh, does against the player characters at various stages and, uh, what the player characters can do to take them out and to figure out leads. Um, so in my example, I created a conspiracy with multiple organizations and these organizations would have ties to each other, not just well organizations, but certain individuals. And so the player characters would get multiple leads from their first, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh their initial lead and they chose how to investigate them. Sometimes they would hear a name and then it would surface up three or, you know, after dealing with three other organizations, cause everything was interconnected. That's the basic idea is you work your way up to take out the heads. Yes. And, um, but as you do so, the closer you get to the source, the more dangerous things become for the characters. There are, uh, heat rules, which, um, kind of like wanted stars and GTA and other video games, um, where, uh, they'll send assassins after you. They'll bribe cops to go after you. Um, they'll hack your bank records. Um, it Kidnap go after your, your grandma mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, uh, there are rules for dealing with player characters being, uh, captured, um, and, uh, getting information after that, after of course, interrogation or, um, something bad happens to the player character. So, uh, which is, has to be handled delicately. You have to, basically I told my player, you, if you get captured, you will 
get out. You will escape. I'm not going to kill your character while they're a prisoner, but, you know. And, and you yeah. will escape with a valuable clue. Yeah. But yes. it, it needs to strike a balance between the the narrative conventions of spy uh, cinema and and media where, oh, the spy gets captured and then he escapes after learning something valuable and the horror uh, conventions of getting captured, which are, oh, yeah, the vampire could, captured you and now you're out on the street and you feel great and you're not mind controlled at all. Not mm-hmm. even a little bit. No mind control yeah. happening here. Ken, Ken so. makes the point that players do absolutely hate having their characters captured, and oh, yeah. um, well, which is you know, ab- absolutely valid, and, and ha- ways of, of mitigating that. Um, but yeah, it's essentially he covers, the conspiracy potentially covers all the aspects, things that are likely to crop up at some point in a, a, a great piece of espionage drama, and then gives you case analysis of, of, of how to deal with them. It's essentially, it's like that great big map of photos and newspaper clippings all connected with string on a, yep. you know, the, the mad detective's which, wall. Which mm-hmm. it encourages the players to build. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I described it as a robust plot structure that adapts to the player's behavior or that allows the GM to easily uh, springboard off the player's decisions. And I think it is indicative of a larger tension inside NBA, which is on one hand, it wants to be and feels it needs to be an extremely tightly controlled thing. It, uh, it is, a mystery. So therefore the GM must know what the solution is to the mystery so that the GM can proffer the core clues to the players to lead them to their confrontation. But it does not want to be a complete railroad. And so it is trying to reconcile the deterministic aspects with the random aspects and the way it does that is by having the deterministic aspects be the investigation and the random aspects be the fallout of the investigation and the way Mm -hmm. that the investigation is pushed forward it's i've i've been developing this feeling that the killer app of tabletop role-playing games, the thing it does that video games can't, is creative wildness. You will always have that player who does the thing you don't expect, Mm -hmm. where it's like, I've set this character up to be such a good font of information and a fine ally, and the player's just like, I hate him. I will thwart Everything he does until I get in a position where I can put a pillow on his face. Mm-hmm. You're like, but, but why, why, why don't you like him? You're you're supposed <laughs> to like him. Well, I do not. Mm-hmm. And this is having it, it. It wants to have a control freak GM, but the control freak GM is okay with the players being their chaos agent selves. Right. And yeah, and it it sounds like it works. I mean, it sounds like it's a pretty functional 
navigation between that Scylla and Charybdis. I mean, you are trying to destroy the conspiracy. Basically, you create this house of cards and tell the players, go knock it down. Which um, chaos agents are good at. Mm-hmm, this is a yeah. task for we- <laughs> <laughs> player characters crafted for a single purpose to destroy the world of GM plans. <laughs> so yeah, the conspiracy mid is, is, is a great tool and certainly something you could use outside. Even if you don't play Knights Black Age and you don't like Gumshoe, um, if you want to make a game about the player characters investigating a conspiracy, a shadowy organization of some kind, uh, this is a really good framework to um, build that up. Um, certainly I would use this in other systems. Um, the, uh, but the other system, of course, for the GM that really is interesting is the vampire toolkit building. Um, and, uh, it, it basically, you know, uses the gumshoe system, uh, to allow you to sort of customize what are your vampires, what they can or can't do. Now I do have one complaint about this. Um, lay it on me. Uh, as a GM, I personally found it. I was when I first ran Knights Black Agent. I actually should have run a one shot or a two shot before we jumped into a thirteen session campaign, um, because I, again, you were talking about players being chaos agents um, in the very ser- <laughs> first session of my my campaign, <laughs> Tribes of Tokyo. A player they saw someone climbing a w- wall with their hands, just a sheer wall, completely inhuman. Uh, it, while they were, you know, doing something in Tokyo and, uh, cause that's where the campaign is set. Uh, and the, and the players are like, after this, 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 uh, you know, spoiler alert, vampire killed somebody. So they're like, Oh my God, that's really freaky. But one player's like, well, I'm going to go up the fire escape and chase after him. I'm like, really? Uh, <laughs> you're armed with a stun gun. You're armed with a taser. Um, is okay. And the thing about gumshoe that's different than running other role-playing games as a GM is is in other games, uh, when you kill a player character, it's the it's usually a combination of the dice of the player making decisions and the dice. It's not the G you're not the GM saying, All right, I'm just gonna make you dead now. Um Rocks Gumps- fall, everybody yeah. dies. Right. And and as a GM, you kind of don't want to do that because that's very arbitrary and unfair. You want it like, at least for me, that was sort of my instinct was to like when player characters die, it's a combination of bad right. choices and bad luck. And you don't um, want it to happen in the very first session. But it, so this player, like if this had been a Call of Cthulhu game, I'm like, all right, well, I'll just have the vampire attack. And if he connects with the hit, he's dead. You know, it's like 50% chance that, you know, he gets his head ripped off. But here's the thing in Gumshoe. The you, GM doesn't roll. No, the GM does roll. The GM does roll in oh, combat. Okay. You do the, the, you always roll in combat. But the GM monsters, vampires, have their own pools of points uh, called aberrants. And <laughs> spoiler alert, those pools are a lot higher than player characters. Um, and so as a GM, if you're running gumshoe as a GM and the players just attack a monster, you could just say, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to spend 20, I'm going to spend 30 points of aberrance this round, make six attacks, all of them hit, and I'm going to roll eight, <laughs> I'm going to roll 12d6 damage. You have eight hit points and go to negative, you know, you could take 20 damage. I'm rolling 12d6. You're dead. Um, 
I did not. I didn't. I wasn't comfortable doing that in the first session. And, and uh, yeah, because yeah. it would look like you were just deliberately deprotagonizing. But I him. should have, because he could have. That was the easiest time for him to make a new character, and that would have like uh. these vampires are not to be fucked with. And um, oh, that and, was and the cinematic yeah. description was you know the other players just see him running up this fire escape, brandishing his his spark gun, and then mm-hmm. sixty seconds pass. And then this severed head just falls down and right. bounces. In the yes, the wet it. slap. I'm uh, I'm I'm a big fan of of that kind of player character death. I did actually spoiler for my own RPG in in a Las Vegas. Uh, the GM is instructed to kill one of the player characters in almost literally the opening scene. Mm-hmm. Um, there are reasons for it, and it's explained and everything. Um, but, uh, and as you, as you say, that's the moment where you can create another one. You've got zero investment in a Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. You have literally zero investment because all the characters have amnesia. You know nothing about the character, any character at, at that point, except they're dead. I mean, talking about narrative structure and, and stuff like one of the things that, that the whole game does extremely well is capture, not just how to lay out a really good role-playing scenario, but how to capture the flavor of any great spy movie or spy spy book and Ken boils it down at one point by basically going every time you invest you know you investigate something you find something but then you also that causes danger as mm-hmm. as well and then you have to escape the danger and that's basically most most espionage movies or quite a lot of horror movies as, as well right. before it gets into just the chase but well in in trail of cthulhu like if a player character attacks a monster, it's more expected for you to to to, to spin. That's the thing, just in general with Gumshoe. If you want to, you can kill a player by spending a lot of points on the antagonist. It's like just, yeah, it's like, like poker when you can just buy the pot. Yeah, and in Trail of Cthulhu, it's like, well, you attacked a Shoggoth. What did you expect? Uh, but in this game, because there's no, it it just felt. Like it was harder for me to do that. And so what wound up happening was the player characters were more weren't terrified of the vampires, but the vampires are very resilient. So like, please, God, let us be able to kill them this time They I, I made them too resilient. I didn't make them offensive enough. I didn't give them. So um, that was sort of so there's kind of this difference of expectations whereas in a delta green game i was like well he's 60 percent chance to hit you if he hits you he has a really good chance of killing you in one shot so eh, we'll see what the dice say but in this one it's like well if i spend a lot i'll hit you but if i don't it's 50 50 maybe so like yeah it's it's there's that's a learning curve uh for gms trying to run gumshoe um and wanting to run a game where player characters can die which is sort of important to a horror game a violent horror game i think um so um that's you know so that's my complaint with it but other than that i like the vampire building rules sorry i just found the the quote that uh, it's i was going to give you the page number in this version that nobody else except 49 other people in the world own um ken says in the thriller the reward for danger is information having information points you into danger when the hero rests add more danger for hal hartley fans it's trouble and desire it's literally the the trouble and desire thing this it's, is it's, a- just a brilliant summation of of essentially how you can just I could improvise an entire campaign probably off those that that paragraph of text. Mm-hmm. I had a there it's unpublished currently, but I had a system I was I was working on something like this for building 
plots out and I'm like, okay, there are basically three kinds of scenes you're going to do. There's the information finding scene. There's the scene where you learn more about the characters and there's the action scene. And you can't go too far wrong if it's just, okay, I just ran an action scene, so I can't run another action scene. Or I just ran a character scene, so I can't run another character scene. Always switch to something you didn't just do. And, you know, there's more to it than that. But it, it being good is knowing which one to switch to. But just that guideline of I just ran an investigation scene. I don't want to run another investigation scene. Mm-hmm. I think gives you a pretty good rhythm and Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in his own way. Yeah. Ken's doing the same thing here. I think we're in how people play it then. (laughs) Yes. How people play it. And, you know, maybe smushed a little bit with why they play it that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, you know, earlier I said, Oh, it's like Lancer. And I'm going to now say, but it's not like blades in the dark. Because what Blades in the Dark does and does and does and always chooses to do is go with the improvisational pantser GM approach. And Mm -hmm. what this does is go very much in the opposite direction where it's like you can prepare everything, you can pre-plot it, and it Again, the the toolkit aspect that we mentioned uh, is a lot of work for the GM. The GM is going to toil getting an NBA game ready. And there are a lot of GMs who love that, who they're like, yes, I will do the homework. Give it to me. I want to download maps of Srebrenica and find (laughs) out how to pronounce things and figure out how this gangster is going to say dump his body with the others in check and I just want to do all these things and it must be said if you're if you're not comfortable with Eastern European place names this may not be the role play uh-huh. for you nope uh, so it is a guideline to producing a extremely tailored specific, individual campaign and a lot of other games are content to give you a fast fashion approach where you just buy it off the rack but the payoff is i remember distinctly hearing about a tailor in chicago who does not put belt loops on the pants when you buy a suit from him and if and when people ask about this he's like why do you need a belt with a suit that fits perfectly? And when they mm. say, but what if I gain or lose weight? He says, I will always modify this suit. Bring it here and I will make it fit perfectly. You will never need a belt with these pants. And I'm like, holy shit, that's some, that's some luxury. I want, I want pants like that. Of course, I've <laughs> never gotten them. But I think that this has that going on. That if the GM is willing to put the work in, you can create this extremely specifically tailored experience that you, you know, that is to your tastes and to your players' tastes. Ideally, Mm -hmm. to your players' tastes. Certainly to your tastes. Um, 
So I, I, I will say um, that this prep work on the GM, I think, is actually very front ended um, because once you get it going, once you've built the conspiracy, the conspiracy up um, and the player characters have their agents, you figure out how the vampires work. Um, then it, then as long as you can figure out, okay, well, the player characters hit the street gang in this session, uh, the drug dealer is going to do this. Uh, the, um, other people are going to, it's basically reactive. Like the conspiracy is this big organism. And every time the player characters poke it, you should understand, hopefully you understand this organism well enough that, uh, you know how it reacts when it's poked in this way. Um, you know, if you, this ambitious lieutenant of the vampire who wants to take over sees the street gang go away and he's like, Oh, I'm going to make my own plans because of this weakness. I'm going to be able to profit, uh, for example, um, what, whatever it is. So once you're in the middle of it, 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 and you, as long as you figure out how the, how it reacts to the player characters, then that's the game, the back and forth between the players and the conspiracy. So, um, so it doesn't take. So once you, once you get through that initial work, it, it runs pretty smoothly in my experience because you, so, you should understand how how it works um, and what will happen when the player characters, you know, steal the artifact from the vault and uh, set everything on fire. And this know. this makes a lot of sense that you will you will make an investment of prep and effort and imagination, but you will get a good return on that investment because of the attention that the structures in place have paid to making it run smoothly, making it easy for the GM to transition their prepared material into the spontaneity of being at the table. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, in, in its own way, this is as much of a framework for generating a particular style of campaign as Blades in the Dark is. The campaign and it, the way it is told and the way it emerges will be completely different. But they're both, you know, very, very, you know, brilliantly well put together toolkits for generating a particular type of interactive fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, and again, you need to have people who are all in that wavelength uh, for that interactive fiction because uh, in my campaign, uh, we did a postmortem and some players really liked it uh, because they love that kind of fiction and they love that investigation. And also I did do a lot of homework on like Tokyo and like all the various weirdness of Tokyo and incorporated that in the campaign. There's weirdness uh, other, in Tokyo? There's, <laughs> there's Yeah surprisingly enough, one of the biggest cities in the world has a lot of weird things going on. Uh, Whoa, the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big news. Um, but other players didn't enjoy it as much. They had fun, but it wasn't like their favorite campaign because um, they're not the kind of person who, who looks at a bank and like, well, here's how I would rob it, and here's here's how it I'd inter- you know, um, here's how I'd steal secrets from that <laughs> safe house uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, there's, there's an example in the in the sample scenario that's in the back of the book, which is you know a lovely tight piece of piece of writing where Ken gives an example of the way that his players in playtest mm-hmm. solved one of the problems, and and it's just like you watch too much spy fiction. Mm-hmm. It's just it's 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 a very 
somebody who is immersed in the, in this genre would come up with that solution. Ordinary and, players, almost certainly not. Yeah. Oh my god! Uh, and it is the spy fiction. Like it's not real world spy stuff because that's way more boring and <laughs> more depressing if you read about it. Um, the it's it's. You know, for example, it's, you know, being able to get guns in Tokyo. Oh, sure. If you spend a points in contact, you can get a gun dealer, uh, a smuggler who can help you um, and uh, that sort of thing. So it is very much a, even even in the most realistic mode, it is still a heightened sense of reality. Not like, well, no, your fingerprints and your face facial recognition databases are panopticon. You can't have a forged passport anymore um, without the backing of, a, of another state, of another government. Um, so, uh, that's another thing to keep in mind too. It, it's, you just need to know spy movies. You don't need to read up on real world spy Or you stuff. need to yeah. set it in 1996. Yeah. That, that's another possibility. Yeah. I'll tell uh, you what, uh, you saying, you know, people who are immersed in spy stuff. I know a guy who is writing novels set, uh, cold war that based on actual people, they're uh, centered on mm. George Kisavalter, who was central to a couple Russian defections and the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and is just sort of the historical figure at the center of this Cold War era spy stuff. And I'm like, if I could get him to play, he's not a not a gamer as far as I know, but I'm like, oh man, he would. He would probably be really good at Knights Black Agents mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. until you brought the vampires in. And even then, he's you know, he's he's a pretty good dude. He'd he'd probably go with it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the books that Ken talks about at the, at the back is uh, Tim Powers Declare and Ken is a huge Tim Powers fan as everybody should be. <laughs> and Declare Who is, is it? explicit it's primarily about Kim Philby, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, one of the maverick figures who wanders through post World War II espionage circles, usually up to his neck in in treachery and and stuff. Um, if you've not read Declare, I recommend it very highly. It's when the when you discover who the bad guys, it's largely was one of the, you just where where did you take that? It's great. It's absolutely Declare great. Is fabulous. Um, but one could you could do that with. It, the thing about the vampires is you're given so much, so many options of what to do with them. They don't have to be vampires. They, you know, mm-hmm. put aside any vision. I mean, forget the capes, but forget the blood drinking, forget all the rest of that. They are merely very, very powerful, hyper normal entities um, that are at the peak of this pyramid, for want of a better word, whatever structural shape you decide to make of it. Sure. Um, sure. That it is your job to take down with food chain. You may have rocket launchers, but they're probably not going to be good enough. Um, Yeah. Yeah. One of Um, them. It's it's a very, very versatile system. Yeah. Page 145, you get pretty much the vampires from Tim Powers, The Stress of Her Regard, which Mm -hmm. one of my favorite Powers books. And it was it was not hard to read this and see how you do the strain, how you do. I'm trying to think of other vampire books and and movies that I'm like, how hard would it be to do this and that? But I don't have. I, I am not the obsessive vampire movie watcher that probably can. Well, is. you could. I mean, they don't even have to be vampires. They could be, for example, scanners uh, or children of the corn grown up um, or. Uh, 
literally demons, ha- there's a demons are specifically demons, mentioned yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. There's uh, really any, any, anything, any, basically the, the only requirements for the antagonist is that they control, manipulate uh, multiple organizations uh, and for feed off people. Ends. Yeah. Well, and feed is, is, you know, in, in quotes, like that could be any number of things. Um, like, I mean, they mentioned you could do a completely mundane game where you're just like taking down the mafia. Um, just, just again, remove some of the cinematic stuff. Uh, and, uh, you could do the untouchables. Um, so there it's, it's with a rocket launcher. Oh, let me, <laughs> with the rocket launcher. Yeah, yeah. Let me find the bit from page 136 that I just, uh, bookmarked with cool, which the vampire is a hallucination. Vampire victims are serial killers or suicides with a folie à dieu or other neurological condition in common. And so, yeah, you could do it as a very, very normalized, oh, no, there are, the vampires are, you think you're chasing vampires, you're just chasing a metaphor, man. You're, this is just the inhumanity of society. (laughs) <laughs> There's not some evil dude in a red-lined cape making people act, be miserable and act terrible. It's inevitable social structures. So we've mm. suddenly we've suddenly made socialist vampires. Uh, although he does then add, you know, that neurological condition or the vi- or the virus causing it may be sentient. So he's like, you can swerve it back to science fiction easily. But yeah, imagine running a night's black agent where they think they're going to encounter a literal vampire. And then at the end, you're just like, no, it's just the historical processes. It's just capitalism. Yeah. yeah. It's a billionaire. It's, you know, it's a <laughs> billionaire. Oh, there it is. Um, it's not yeah. very hard to make a billion. It's like, oh, what? Then why did he want all that blood? Cause he's Peter Thiel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there is a new game or a game that was just kickstarted uh, this year called the hammer and stake, which is <laughs> a new RPG where 1920s era Eastern European socialists fight a tyrannical government led by Count Dracula. So uh, a bit on, yes. Yeah, uh, um, I believe that's powered by the apocalypse though. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like everything. Well, and so here you see the difference is that that has a, a structure and a setting and a very, you know, you know the name of the bad guy and you know what you're getting into going into it because it's very simple to read a review online or read the back of the, the book and know, okay, yes, we are going to be communists fighting Dracula, kick ass. Whereas mm. with NBA, it's like, we're going to be spies fighting vampires, but boy, I do not. That that vampire is a big black box, and we do not know what its inputs or outputs are yet. And won't know until we get to poking it. Yeah. Um, sorry, it, it is actually its own system, uh, to, to, to be fair to the hammer and stake. Ah, okay. Um, but, Yay, hammer uh, and stake. So I think we're at the last uh, section of why people play it that way. And we have been for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and Yeah. yeah. I think the question is what what way it's it's completely up to you. I think the versatility mm-hmm. is um, you know you're given a, a simple jumping off point that almost everyone knows or everyone's seen the at least one of the Jason Bourne movies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you you know what it it's about going in, but then you get as as 
Greg was saying, you get into the weirdness, you get well, into the and unknowns, well, and I have an answer to work that out. For, okay. you know, who is playing it and why that way, and it is the old-style GM who would, in the 80s, have been filling notebook after notebook with dungeon schematics and you know, writing out endless NPCs. It's for the creative control freak, which is, I think, the description of almost everybody who goes on to design their own game. <laughs> so it is there are people who are like i am not going to take this pre-cooked meal of a dungeon and leave it like that i am going to change it and mod it and make it my own thing and for them this is just the next natural step i think there are also a lot of gms who are like yes make everything as easy on me as it can be Pre-chew my food, that's fine. Okay, that is a prejudicial metaphor that's that's a little snarky. I withdraw it. But there are people who, you know, would love a prepackaged adventure or setting or scenario where it's like, okay, all I have to do is run the thing. I don't have to write anything. I don't have to really decide much except how I interpret and describe and maneuver events once my chaos agent players hit this like an acid crashing into a base and there well, can be a lot of skill in that mm -hmm. uh in in how you present and interpret and pace and manage that prepackaged thing but another segment of gms are just going to want to make their own, are going to want to build it by scratch. And you know, again, to, to you know, use the metaphor, do you want to buy a piece of furniture or do you want to build a piece of furniture? Because these are, you know, two people who both need furniture are very different in how they behave if they're buying it versus building it. And this is for people who definitely want to build it, who are like, I want to go down in my workshop with my tools, mm -hmm. as opposed to... And just to push that a little bit further, your relationship to a piece of furniture you have built to a conspiracy that you put together rather than yes. reading about it in a book will be that much more intense and that much tighter and closer. And your memories, which is, you know, after the end of a campaign, that's literally, you've got a few tattered character sheets and your memories of it. I think this is a game that will make strong memories of, of really interesting and I hope intense, you know, role-playing experiences. Yeah. Um, I would say for the players though, from the player side, why you would want to play nice black agents versus other games. Um, I think the greatest appeal of it is in a Knights black agents game it's about fighting uh, an evil, an adversary that is more powerful than you in a modern setting. It definitely has to take place in sort of the real world or a version of the real world. It's not a fantasy world. It's a world with, you know, phones and cars and uh, airplanes and all the things that we understand. Global but, uh, warming. Yeah, global warming. Well, yeah. Um, it's about fighting an adversary that is much 
it's larger than you and more powerful than you. And so your ability to defeat the adversary is based on your ability to outthink it, um, to be able to interpret information, to figure out ways to hurt this adversary, the, the conspiracy, um, in order to put a stake in the heart of its, you know, in its heart, the leaders, the vampires. Um, so it, it rewards players who it's about players who want to be able to come up with a plan that defeats their foe, not, you know, using teamwork to defeat their enemies like in Lancer. Um, or, I mean, having character arcs is fine and, and is sort of encouraged in Nice Black Agent, but that's the, the core gameplay is about outthinking uh, an adversary that is always going to have more guns than you, uh, more resources than you, but it's slower and you know, you your only advantage is of being smaller and uh, more nimble and hopefully smarter than it. Um, move and fast, that, that it, break vampires. Yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. or alternately, yeah. move fast and stake things. Yeah. And so that that's the appeal. Um, and for pl- not that's not for everybody. You know, it's for, for, for people who are, you know, not reactive, but active. Um, and, and want to, and will initiate plans and initiate actions rather than wait for prompts from the GM. If you wait for the GM to sort of tell you what to do, this is definitely not the game for you. And there's, there's a lot of players like that and that's fine. But, you know, there's certainly a lot of games for you out there, but this is not one of them. But I'll um, also, yeah. something you said in there about character arcs and development mm-hmm. reminded me, I think of something I think it was Robin again who was talking about archetypal characters versus literary characters, and I'm probably not using his exact nomenclature, but he said that in most stories are about how the character changes and comes to grips and learns a lesson about themselves and grows, and that that is the typical character-oriented design of fiction. But it's not the only path. Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes never grows. He starts as the world's greatest <laughs> detective and he ends as the world's greatest detective. He does not need an arc because he is an archetype. Nobody cares about Tarzan's inner journey. And I think that you can very much play NBA. I mean, the. They talk about, you know, with mirror and with burn modes, they bolt on that sort of interiority. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for the most part, you could play this as archetypes where it's like, yeah, I started out as an ex-Navy SEAL sniper badass. And by the end of the game, I've become an even more ex-Navy SEAL, even more badass ex-sniper. Yeah. I mean, character arcs can be subtle, too. Like, in Ronin, uh, Robert De Niro um, befriends um, uh, Jean Reno's gunman character. You know, the, the, they, they become friends at the end, and they save each other's lives. And that it's, it's a small character arc. but uh, And the woman he he's fell for doesn't appear, and so he'll always be left wondering about that. Uh, but then in, like, Tinker Tarot's Sol- Soldier Spy, you know, it's about... Smiley, you know, becoming a bitter, hollowed, you know, uh, shell of a human as uh, he loses everything around him. But he beats the the beats the Russians. So, you know, at what price victory? So um, there's there's yeah, degrees it, of character arcs. Yeah. 
It's yeah. I mean, it's this is the first game we've been over that I've really felt inspired to do something with before I realised that it would be a twenty episode campaign, and I have neither the energy nor the um, yeah, probably nor the friends. I've done a three. <laughs> I've done a satisfying three episode game of it, a yeah. three three um, session of it. So I think you could do it in three sessions. Possibly, but what what I would do with it is I'd go to Len Dayton's um, what are known as the Harry Palmer stories um because of the films with michael kane the ipcrest file funeral in berlin a billion dollar brain but in the novels that they're based on the novels are better the character has no name um but it's the height of the cold war and it's east-west tension and this game could mirror that so brilliant i don't know what i'd do with the, the you know i don't know who the big threat would be yet but this is i think it's the first espionage game i've read that i actually thought i could do harry palmer and it would be great I'll tell uh, you what, the... but but the, the Harry Palmer character never grows particularly. He never learns very much. Um, mostly, he he you know looks at the body of of somebody he had feelings for and turns away. And you know somewhere inside there was a bit of a feeling, and then he goes off and makes an omelet. It's yeah, <laughs> I could go for an omelet. Uh, <laughs> I was going to tell you with with, you... with with or without that steak. Yeah. I could go for a steak omelet. That'd be pretty nice. Uh, yeah. Get some spinach and a little feta cheese. Mm. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, that. That means we've, uh, pretty <laughs> I'm, much I'm said all we're going to say about Knights uh, Agents. I, I will yeah. tell you what your vampire should be for your Harry Palmer game, though. James mm-hmm. is Rocco's Basilisk. Is oh, that? Oh, bloody hell! Yes, it's just an idea existing within a structure of information trying mm. to make itself come true there you go that's that's that fits in with billion dollar brain which is i don't know if you've seen it i haven't it's, um it's in it's bonkers it's complete i mean the, the ipcrest file is great but has dated funeral in Berlin is just flat out great billion dollar brain is insane it is a very it is uh, it's ken russell ken russell being given way too much money and having far too much fun with it not really knowing what he's doing um but uh, yes yes that would yeah okay i have to go right. away and write some notes now curse <laughs> right. you curse well you. uh yeah you've been mused uh thank you all for listening uh we'll see if um Greg's plea for a thousand year old vampire wins the next poll. Oh, yeah. I'll, yeah. Ooh, uh, more vampires. Yeah. Uh, I'm happy for any any particular game to be voted on. I, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have put them on the list if we didn't want to talk about them. It's true. Uh, yeah. And uh, thank you all for your support. Um, and again, check anchor.fm uh, slash Leto Narrative dash dissidents. Um, I'll put a, uh, their links on the Kickstarter uh, if you want to get just download these to a podcasting app. All right. Um, All right, we'll talk to you all later. All right. Special thanks this week to backer Jesse Lawrence Morgan. We appreciate your support. And my personal thanks go to Dan Williamson for his support and mostly his money. Let's be perfectly frank about this. Uh, We couldn't have done this without either of them.